May it please the court, counsel. Again, my name is Paul Serratore, and I represent the appellant cross-respondent in this matter, James Peeler. This matter is before the court today <clears throat> based upon a request for review of the Court of Appeals decision dated December 10, 2018, wherein the court affirmed the trial court's pretrial decision of April 10, 2017, denying Mr. Peeler's motion to suppress. Mr. Peeler was later convicted of third-degree DUI following a stipulated facts trial. An appeal was, filed, appeal was then filed challenging the constitutionality of the stop of Mr. Peeler back in 2016. The salient issue decided by the Court of Appeals regarding the stop of Mr. Peeler dealt with the cracked windshield, as that was the only basis for the stop that the trial court actually analyzed in its decision to deny Mr. Peeler's motion. The Court of Appeals, once the appeal was brought to their attention, agreed with Mr. Peeler that the officer failed to articulate a sufficient basis or failed to provide sufficient information regarding the crack in Mr. Peeler's windshield to justify a seizure. However, in affirming the trial court's decision, the Court of Appeals inexplicably utilized what could be characterized, for lack of better terms, as an afterthought because it was minimally addressed by the trial court and attorneys, including the state's attorney, at the trial court level, and that was the alleged seatbelt violation. I say afterthought because the officer who stopped Mr. Peeler made a slight reference in the record to an alleged seatbelt violation not only in the squad video, which accounts, which is a real-time accounting. Counsel, how much do you think the officer needed to say in regards to the seatbelt for it to be, um, in your mind, to be enough? Your Honor, as I, I noted in my brief, uh, with regards to the seatbelt violation, saying something more than it appeared that the seatbelt was not on, which is what he stated. Number two, to identify that he was able to look into the compartment, what he was able to identify that the seatbelt was hanging, not on Mr. Peeler, something more than what was provided. He didn't articulate any facts particularized to but he the seatbelt violation. But he wouldn't know if the seatbelt was on or off until he actually stopped him. But he did say that he thought that he, there was not, he did not have his seatbelt on. Excuse me? I'm sorry. I said that... Um, he wouldn't know if the seatbelt was on or off until he actually stopped him, but he did indicate that he thought he was not wearing his seatbelt. Well, that in and of itself is an issue because stopping somebody for a seatbelt violation is a primary offense, and you can stop somebody for a seatbelt violation. So they have, there has to be some, some facts articulated as to why there is an intrusion under the Fourth Amendment based upon a seatbelt violation. If the, if the officer is not sure if he's not wearing the seatbelt, he needs to have something more than at least what was provided in this case to stop Mr. Peeler. So would he have case. to pull up alongside him and, and see if he's actually wearing the seatbelt? That would be one way. And how would you do that if it was a, a single lane road? Well, it, it, as in this case, he did a U-turn. He came up behind him. He, he followed him. He could have... Uh, followed him longer. He could have waited a little bit longer, came up alongside of him. It's not like he had any other indication that Mr. Peeler was driving erratically or anything like that. He stopped him for basically two what you would call equipment violations, the seatbelt and, and the, uh, uh, the cracked windshield. 
he could have done more. He wasn't af afraid that Mr. Peeler was going to flee. He wasn't afraid that there's nothing in the record that shows that, that uh, Mr. Peeler was acting erratic, driving erratically, was any threat to the people on the road. Counsel, so can I just add, I, I, I wonder if, um, if we can just talk about the cracked windshield for a minute. Um, I know we're sort of pulling <laughs> no, that's you, okay. literally pulling you all around today. Um, but I wonder if State versus Fort, uh, which you do cite, I think, in your reply brief, um, helps us with the cracked windshield issue. I mean, there um, we um, said the car was stopped for speeding and a cracked windshield both of which are violations of traffic laws. And so we said there was a reasonable articulable suspicion for the stop, for the investigatory stop. We didn't in Ford look at whether or not the cracked windshield, the extent of the cracked windshield. We simply said there's a cracked windshield, that's enough. Now I understand there was a speeding violation as well, but I wonder if the discussion about the cracked windshield in Fort doesn't support the conclusion that the Court of Appeals went too far here. Well, in looking at the Fort case, first, as Your Honor has um, explained, yes, there was speeding and there was a high crime area, which was all part of the Fort decision. Um, I guess if I look at the Fort decision as it relates to this case, yes, I mean, we said that the cracked windshield was enough. However, it's not clear if, if, if this court um, analyzed um, the actual crack itself, okay? It was more based upon the speeding and, and the high crime area uh, that decision was made. I think this, in that case, in Fort, the windshield was more of an afterthought. I don't know. But, but in any event, I mean, the larger issue, it seems to me, with your argument is that you are, you, you, it's almost as though you're saying the police need probable cause, um, a level of certainty um, with respect to the seatbelt violation and, I guess, the cracked windshield. But the standard here for an investigative stop is a much lower standard. So help me help me understand why your argument isn't really asking us to adopt a probable cause standard. I'm not asking the court to go that far because obviously that would be improper under Terry. But there has to be some articulated facts to support the intrusion under Terry. There is no articulated facts. There's a faint attempt at a conclusory statement in both, in both instances, on the seatbelt and with the cracked windshield. If you look at the cases that where cracked windshields have been held to be a basis for the stop, there has been more given, such as the size of the crack, the location of the crack, it's shattered. In this case, there wasn't even that. There, what the cracked windshield was, the windshield was cracked. We don't know the size. We don't know the, the location. The officer himself, in the record, said, I know nothing about the crack. I can't recall. I can't tell you anything. His, his report said nothing. Reasonable suspicion under Terry states in, in its progenies, such as State v. Britain, there has to be an articulation of some objective basis that an individual sees has been, is presently, or is about to engage in criminal activity. The officer must be able to articulate facts which reasonably justify the investigative stop. Again, we have nothing more than the windshield was cracked. That, again... 
a conclusory statement, nothing to support why he believed the windshield crack or why he would believe that it was uh, impairing the vision as the statute provides and is necessary for a, for a traffic violation. I'm not asking this court to adopt the probable cause standard, and I don't think asking an officer to articulate more than just the windshield was cracked is asking the officer to formulate probable cause. Counsel, it looks like there are three elements to this crime. One, that you're driving. Two, that you've got a cracked windshield. And number three, the windshield is cracked to the extent to limit or obstruct vision. Correct. Now, there's no question that elements one and two were established. Uh, your client was driving and the windshield was cracked. Um, what, is, what is the rule you're proposing? Is it, is it not permissible under the Fourth Amendment for an officer when the officer sees two elements of a crime having been committed to pull somebody over to investigate whether the third element has or has not been committed? And, and I believe Your Honor is looking more towards the unpublished Oliveros case, which talks about investigations. No, I'm, I'm actually just I'm actually looking conceptually. Conceptually, well, Your Honor, if you're going to say that a cracked windshield, you can pull somebody over based upon the statute that it's cracked. There has to be an articulation of something that would lead the officer to make an inference that it obstructs the view, such as size such as location. So you need a reasonable articulable suspicion as to each and every element of the crime? That's the argument, yes. Okay. And has any case dealt with that concept? Is there black letter law to the effect each element of the crime must be supported by reasonable articulable suspicion before a stop is allowed under the Fourth Amendment? Well, well there's not black letter law other than what we have with regards to Britain and, and the such with regards to an articulable reasonable suspicion particularized to the reason why they're pulling somebody over, or it, it, I shouldn't say it in general terms, for, for, an for an intrusion under the Fourth Amendment. No, there's not exactly black-letter law on that that says each element of the crime has to have a reasonable suspicion. But it would lead, if the crime is that the windshield has to obstruct vision, there has to be more than just the windshield's cracked. It would lend you to... Well, isn't the standard that you have to see has suspicion of criminal activity? And if you've met two out of three crime, if, if a state comes in and meets two out of three elements of a crime, they're not going to win. They're not going to prove you committed criminal activity. That's correct. And that's black letter law. That is black letter, yeah. The, that, but that's going towards the proving the actual crime itself. Let me ask you, though, about Terry itself. Because in Terry itself, I mean, there wasn't, the, the, the officer was worried about a potential future crime. They, the officer was watching the defendants, and the, the officer thought, based on his training and experience, that the defendants may have been getting ready to commit a crime. And the court in that case still said there's a basis to stop and investigate further. So how does Terry itself square with the rule that you're asking us to adopt? Well, with Terry, I mean, there's actually some articulation of more than just the windshield is cracked. There's... The officer is watching them. The officer is uh, watching to see their movements, and through his training and experience, would 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 agree that there's a possibly a criminal activity afoot. We don't have anything like that. We don't have anything to say that this this windshield may have been obstructing the view. We have nothing other than it's it's a cracked windshield. We don't know the size. We don't know the location. Nothing about it. We don't know if it's a, a two inch crack in the top right corner. We have nothing to go by. There's nobody who can make that. There's there's no articulable suspicion particularized to that criminal activity other than it's a cracked windshield.
Going back to the seatbelt violation, if I may, I have obviously addressed the standard in the argument as it relates to the windshield crack, the cracked windshield. The subjective good faith of the officer affecting the seizure is irrelevant, number one. And number two, there has to be more than a mere hunch or curiosity. And that's what reasonable suspicion is. For an officer to say, it appears that the seatbelt was not being worn is akin to a mere hunch. Nothing to point to why he believed that Mr. Peeler was not wearing a seatbelt. Then his reason or his added reason for the stop, which was, was the generalized statement it appeared he was not wearing a seatbelt, was dispelled once he approached the vehicle, which further indicates that he well, had nothing to go. So, you know, I, one of the things that I'm struggling with here is um, you know, there isn't a lot about the seatbelt, but there, there is, he does say it appeared that he wasn't wearing his seatbelt. And then he says, he further, he further testi- he testi- he says, quote, I stopped Paler for the windshield being cracked and for him not wearing his seatbelt. He insisted that he was wearing his seatbelt. So his trial testimony seems to be a little, um, a little more direct than what appears in the police report and in the findings. Am I right or wrong about that? Um, correct. It, it, he made a generalized statement in his police reports about not wearing a seatbelt. Basically, what he said, I mean, it was close to what he said to the court. I mean, his trial testimony is, it did not appear that the driver was wearing a seatbelt. After the stop, he explained to the defendant that he stopped him for a cracked windshield and for failing to wear a seatbelt. And then the defendant was wearing a seatbelt when the officer approached, and he stated, and Mr. Peeler stated he was was wearing it the whole time he was driving. That's the extent of the facts we have in any any analysis, even in in the trial court's decision about the facts. That's all we have. We have nothing more. But it, it's very generalized, and it's, it's actually a little bit more than what he has in his police report. In looking at Mr. Peeler, uh, looking at the seatbelt allegation, when Officer Geis approached the vehicle, his, what he thought appeared to be a violation of law was dispelled. It's very interesting that the Court of Appeals in the state provided more... <laughs> of a factual basis as to the seatbelt and how the seatbelt ended up on Mr. Peeler than did the trial court. The trial court did nothing more than regurgitate the facts that the officer, that we just talked about, that the officer stated. So as it relates to the seatbelt violation, the record is void of sufficient observations of the officer for a stop of Mr. Peeler for this to be valid. So do you have any, what authority would you say best supports your argument that the disclosure here relative to the seatbelt is not sufficient? Well, I think I would first look at, and and it's something I didn't really put in my brief, having to do with the alternative argument uh, pursuant to Grunig, the, uh, the, the respondent can provide an alternative argument at the Court of Appeals level if there's a sufficient record. Probably could have hit on that more in my brief that there really wasn't a sufficient record made regarding the seatbelt violation. What the argument comes full circle to is the second 
the second statement by the Court of Appeals, or second holding as it relates to the seatbelt violation, that they would have held, they would have, they would have found the stop lawful, even if the seatbelt wasn't on, based upon mistake of fact, reasonable mistake of fact. And again, if you look at the cases that talk about reasonable mistake of fact, there's actually facts that can be mistaken. In this case, there's nothing there. If you're going to look at facts, you have to articulate something having to do with the law that was broken. And that goes all the way back to Terry. That goes all the way back to Britain. Those are cases that tell you the officer needs to articulate a particular lie, has to articulate facts particularized to the law that, or the violation that he's... So focusing just on the seatbelt violation itself, not the, um, you know, not the further extension of that argument, reasonable mistake, so forth, but just the seatbelt violation itself, what case would you point to or cases would you point to that support your claim that, uh, let's just assume it's, um, he appeared not to be wearing his seatbelt, that that isn't enough um, for a stop here? State v. George, uh, this case, uh, 557 Northwest 2nd, 575, this court's decision in 1999, where the officer stopped a motorcycle for what appeared to be a three-headlight configuration. Turned out it was not a three-headlight configuration. It had a headlight and the two allowable lamps on each side of the headlight. This court found that to be an invalid basis for the stop based upon the exact language that the officer used in this case. It appeared that the seatbelt was not being worn. Yeah, but counsel, that, why would that case still be good law in, in, uh, now that North Carolina versus Heinen has come down? I mean, the officer is making a mistake of law about whether the head, headlamp configuration complied with the law or not. And North Carolina versus Heinen says a, uh, a mistake as to law doesn't vitiate this, the, uh, the stop. that question. <laughs> think, think about it. Maybe yeah, on rebuttal. So let me ask you another question. Um, if we conclude that you're right and that the Court of Appeals shouldn't have under Grunig considered the seatbelt argument, what's the remedy for that? Should we, since uh, the parties did argue it at the district court, do we remand it to the district court for it to make uh, explicit findings on that? I would argue that this court should not remand it, but just say that it could not be considered. It's been waived. Because, I mean, in Grunig, in Grunig, the argument was that if it wasn't made at the trial court level, if there wasn't sufficient, a sufficient record, then it would have been waived. My argument is that it, it would have been waived. But even so, even if the facts are there, this court can independently review the facts pursuant to Othout, to determine if the court erred in making its decision. Our position would be is not to remand it because all that does is honestly gives the officer a chance to see the decisions and bolster the record if there's actual testimony about that. Well, if, if we remand, does the state get to get a redo and get to supplement the record, or is the district court stuck with the record that's already there? Well, that would be the de that would be uh, the decision of this court that if the, if they can reopen it. Do you have any insight on that? 
No, my, I mean, they could ask to reopen the record. It would be up to the trial court level to see if they wanted to hear more testimony. And the trial court judge, in this case, Judge Shuffleman, to indicate if he wanted to hear more testimony about the issue. Uh, but we would ask to obviously rely on the record that's before the court and have him make findings, if he can, regarding the seatbelt violation. But uh, as if this case is remanded instead of, um, instead of just reversed based upon the lack of a record and lack of articulable, articulable facts regarding the seatbelt well, violation. I think what Justice Chudrich is, is asking, though, is if we don't reach that issue because we think appellate courts, I mean, you're on your, the argument under Grunig, that they shouldn't have gotten to it, then we, then we shouldn't get to it either, right? I mean, that's correct. What, so I think in that circumstance, well, I is think it in that a remand or is it just a in that re, in that argument, if you can't make that decision and the court of appeals wrong was in, in actually um, considering it, then I think it just goes away, and it, that that has been waived by the lower by by the state in not creating the proper record and making the argument at the lower court level, the lower court didn't even analyze it. And I would argue that they should not be able to bring any, argue, any position as to um, the seatbelt violation or the alleged seatbelt violation. I mean, it's really a burden of proof argument, right? I mean, the state has the burden of demonstrating that there was a basis to pull the, your client over and they didn't meet their burden, and so the case is over. Correct, an objective, uh, objective basis. Counsel, I'd like to go back to the idea of um, what police must know as to particular elements of crimes. So let's try this situation. Um, a cop is driving down the street and sees a man and a woman. They seem to be speaking vigorously. Then all of a sudden the man takes a big swing at the woman, which misses. Um, now, assault fear is an assault that causes fear. The police officer has no knowledge one way or the other whether the woman is afraid, but can he pull over and stop the man and, and the woman and investigate whether this, first of all, was an assault, and second, whether it caused fear? Yes, because he clearly saw and could articulate that the man swung at the woman and put her in imminent fear of bodily harm. And that's what the statute says. It, is. it, it may turn out that she was just asking him to demonstrate how he used to be a great boxer. <laughs> It's possible. I don't see it happening. But, well, but in that case, you'd at least have a reasonable suspicion that someone would, could be in fear in that circumstance. Correct. Because Here, it was if you don't see the cracked yeah, windshield, yeah, you don't yeah. have a re if you don't see other things other than the crack, you're not articulating any reasonable suspicion. Correct. And that's what I was going to say. There's nothing articulated more than the windshield was cracked. This officer actually saw a, a, a fist being thrown, which is indicative and could articulate that he saw, number one, that a fist was being thrown, there was a man and a woman, that the woman backed up, not to get hit. I mean, these are things I, that I didn't. I didn't give the back up. Well, you said she I backed said, out of the way. No, I just said it didn't make contact. <laughs> oh, you didn't make, I, thought she, well, I, I guess I assumed she backed up if <laughs> he didn't make contact. But I would say there's more articulated there than there is here. The, saying well, maybe, there was a maybe windshield. in the same instance when the police officer saw a windshield, he was, um, he was thinking that it did in fact obstruct in some way. But he's making a... a, a in the same a, way you just thought that she backed up. <laughs> well, no I, I, no, I misunderstood what you said about I, that. I avoiding it. I just assumed she backed up, which again, it's an assumption, and we know what you say about assumptions. <laughs> um, with regards to your uh, analogy, the position is, is that a swing at somebody customarily means that they're putting them in fear of harm. They're trying to hit them. 
a cracked windshield doesn't necessarily mean that it blurs somebody's vision, especially if we don't know where the crack is, we don't know the characteristics of the, fact, of the crack. A punch thrown at somebody can be reasonably, again, there's that word reasonable, which is the, what's rooted in the, for, which the Fourth Amendment is rooted upon, reasonableness. It's reasonable to believe that somebody who has a punch thrown at them is in fear of imminent harm. It's not reasonable to believe that a cracked windshield, which we have no characteristics about, no, uh, uh, no testimony about of where it is, the size, if it reflects light or what it's doing, is blurring somebody's vision. At this point, I see my time is, is wrapping up very rapidly here. Um, it's the, Mr. Peeler's position that the district, uh, that the Court of Appeals was, prop, uh, was correct in their decision as it relates to the cracked windshield, but they overstepped with regards to the seatbelt violation, not only based upon the fact that there weren't really any facts articulated other than a mere punch with the word appear, but the reasonable mistake of fact was misplaced in this case because there were really no facts to be mistaken for. With Thank, that, you. I, Thank you, Counsel. You have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Mr. Hersey. May it please the court, my name is Scott Hersey. I represent the respondent and cross-appellant in this uh, appeal and cross-appeal. In State v. McKinley in 1975, this court adopted the standards of Terry v. Ohio to evaluate the validity of traffic stops. In applying Terry to the cracked windshield in this particular case, the question becomes, was it reasonable for the officer in this case to suspect that the windshield crack may have violated Minnesota Statute 169.71 and for the officer to conduct a traffic stop based on that to investigate? And I would submit that the answer to that is yes. Counsel, can I just interrupt you right away here and just make sure um, that, I, uh, that I'm following the state's argument? As I looked at your brief, you're not making an argument uh, you're not making a statutory interpretation argument, and by that I mean you're not arguing that the that the end of the clause um, to limit or obstruct proper vision only applies to the discoloration part of the statute and not to the cracked windshield. I mean, you're conceding for purposes of this case that the cracked windshield has to be cracked to the extent that it obstructs proper vision. Yes, okay. I'm not making that argument. Thank you. And I would point out that... Um, the record in this case shows that the, the crack in the windshield of appellant's vehicle was sufficient so that the officer could see it traveling on a two-lane roadway going the opposite direction, both vehicles traveling somewhere in the vicinity of 30 miles an hour. And it was cracked sufficiently that the appellant himself was aware of it, acknowledged it, and said that he intended to get it fixed or words to that effect. Did, did the officer in his testimony... Or is there any evidence in the record that the officer even considered whether it impaired vision? That was not part of the record. The officer didn't get into it, and the testimony did not touch on that. The officer simply indicated in his testimony when asked on cross-examination, he could not recall where the crack was or the specifics of the crack. 
I would submit that this Court's prior rulings on traffic stops strongly suggest that this traffic stop can occur without an officer having reasonable suspicion for every element of a crime. I would submit that if that were the case, that is getting very close to probable cause and substituting a probable cause standard. And I would submit that that is what the Court of Appeals did in this case in its ruling on the cracked windshield. This court indicated uh, in the welfare of GM in 1997 that a stop is valid when an officer observes unusual conduct that leads the officer to reasonably conclude in light of the officer's experience and training that criminal activity may be afoot. And I would point out some of the decisions of this court and, in fact, Terry itself, as was mentioned in the discussion with counsel, uh, Terry was a situation where the officer did not have knowledge of the elements of the crime of aggravated or armed robbery. The officer didn't have facts to show that these people were armed. What the officer did have is the observation of the casing of the store repeatedly, and based on his many years of experience, he had the inference that they were getting ready to commit an armed robbery at that store. And that was sufficient, even though he didn't have reasonable, articulable suspicion of all the elements of aggravated or armed robbery. In State versus Barber in 1975, uh, in that case, this court said that when the license plates were attached with bailing wire, which could support the inference that either the plates were stolen or switched or the vehicle itself was stolen, that was sufficient for reasonable, articulable suspicion to stop to determine if the plates or the vehicle were stolen. Similarly, in State versus Pike, more recently, this court upheld a stop of a vehicle when the driver's license of the registered owner was revoked and the officer saw that vehicle driving on the street. Even though the officer could not, with the facts the officer had, uh, satisfy the element of the identity of the perpetrator of that offense. But in each of those cases, I mean, maybe t- Terry's a little different, we can talk about that, but in each of those cases, the officer was, sus- the, th- the thing that the officer suspected was an actual crime. And here the officer doesn't articulate any suspicion that there was impairing vision. So he, there's no evidence in the record that supports any fact that he actually was, that Mr. Peeler was committing a crime. Well, a crime or a traffic offense, um, either one is is sufficient for the reasonable suspicion. But I would submit that that was not necessary because that's the third element, as Justice Lillehog indicated a moment ago. Um, I would just point out that this court has quoted the decision, a New York case, People v. Ingle, uh, repeatedly in State versus McKinley, State versus Johnson, Marvin versus State, that the factual basis to support a routine traffic check is minimal. An actual violation of the traffic law need not be detectable. And even a vehicle in a dilapidated state may raise reasonable suspicion of equipment violations and would be enough for a stop. Were any of those cases, though, where they didn't observe a a violation? I mean, they quote that language for about, we quoted that language for a couple years in the 70s, if I recall, and we haven't quoted it since. But is there anything in any of those actual cases in Minnesota where they didn't observe the traffic violation? I haven't seen one where they haven't observed something, but uh, there are a number of cases, particularly the Court of Appeals, um, and a number of unpublished decisions where the Court of Appeals says a cracked windshield is enough, and then they go on and analyze other issues in the case. But I would submit that two Court of Appeals decisions, even though they're both unpublished and they don't stand for precedent, uh, merit 
uh, review by this court because I would submit that the reasoning uh, is appropriate. One was Oliveris mentioned by counsel, uh, and one was State versus Wright. Oliveris, uh, as I mentioned, counsel, can I just stop you before you you go down to that unreported? Court of Appeals decision. Is having a cracked windshield a violation of any traffic law? Is it a petty misdemeanor simply to have a cracked windshield? Under the statute as it reads, it does say to the extent to limit or obstruct proper vision. So a crack by itself would not be a violation of the statute. Um, the statute would call if an officer made a stop and if the officer were going to be issuing a ticket for the officer to make further investigations. The whole point of a Terry stop is to make reasonable inquiries. And the officer would stop the person, uh, make those inquiries, look at the crack, and determine if it did, under the circumstances of a particular case, perhaps the height of the driver, the size of the windshield, whether it uh, limited or obstructed proper vision. But the officer in this particular case did not get to that because when the officer went up, he immediately noticed the indicia of intoxication on the part of Mr. Peeler. He but, but counsel, just backing up a, a little bit, uh, isn't you know the conversation you were just having with the chief and a little bit with Justice Teeson, isn't that the very point, that a crack in and of itself in the windshield is not a crime? The crime is when that crack obscures or obstructs vision. Yes. And so doesn't the cop, doesn't the officer have to have reasonable, articulable suspicion that a crime is afoot or is about to, be, to occur? Doesn't he have to say something about why it is that that particular crack is obstructing vision? Because, I mean, when you think about Terry, the reason Terry came out the way it did is because the officer saw something that looked like it was about a crime. That was a, the, 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 the men walking back and forth and, and all of those things tipped the, tipped the officer off that, that the criminal activity might be afoot. There's a, there's a disconnect for me, and that's what you need to connect up for me. Well, Justice, what I would suggest is that for the purposes of the stop, the officer only has to make the objective observation of the crack in the windshield. And I'm, I'm talking specifically about this case, not generally. But that isn't a crime. You just said that isn't a crime in and of itself. But the issue is, was there reasonable, articulable suspicion to believe that it may? And that's the key point, that it may. When the officer gets to the point of needing probable cause to write that citation, or if there's another offense, um, to arrest the person for the other offense, that's the point at which the officer needs probable cause. This is reasonable suspicion. And for the officer and to make... that's why it would require an investigation, right? I mean, they're not going to know at the time of the stop as to whether there is actually a crime because of all the things that you've indicated, the height, the whether... I mean, it's, I, I can't imagine an officer being able to either be driving behind somebody or seeing them from the opposite side of the road and know exactly what this driver is envisioning through the windshield. And we wouldn't want them to just, because they stopped him, say, yes, it's a crime. We want them to investigate to see if there is actually a crime. Precisely. For the stop, the officer only needs to have the reasonable suspicion that that crack may limit or obstruct. But is there anything vision. in the record here that suggests that he thought it may even? Is there anything in the record? That he doesn't talk about whether it obstructs vision. That's true. That's so true. So how can there be? Re how can you say that there's a reasonable, articulable suspicion that the crack blocked vision if he didn't say anything about it and probably didn't even consider it? 
because he didn't need to reach that point, Justice, until he got to the point of probable cause, and we're not talking about probable cause, reasonable suspicion, and he has the right to do an so investigation. You, so the rule is you can pull someone over or stop them on the street if you see them doing something that if there's two more things that happen that you don't even think about might be. I mean, and Terry, the guy with, with his experience, he knew that if you're casing something, it, in his experience, people commit armed robbery. Here, I mean, your rule seems to be able to allow the police officer to pull someone over for anything. And, and I'm not asking the court to make a broad, bright-line rule like that. What I'm asking... Well, but if we make the rule in this case, I think as you're suggesting that someone can pull someone over for a crack without any articulable suspicion that the actual element of the crime... Not, not that you have to know that the crime is committed. The officer wouldn't necessarily have to know that this obstructed vision... But he'd at least have to say, I saw the crack and it appeared to me, or not maybe appeared, but it looked to me, or the way the crack was formed, like it was a fanned out crack or whatever, that it, would, it possibly could obstruct vision, and now I want to pull the officer over because, or pull the person over because I want to investigate if it in fact obstructed vision. I mean, the rule you're articulating would, I think, mean that you could stop someone for no crime at all without even a suspicion of a crime because you're not you're not there's not even a suspicion of the last element reasonable suspicion requires the officer to articulate a fact which causes the officer to reasonably suspect that an offense may be occurring and my point that I'm trying to make justice is that the officer does not have to get into the issue of limiting or obstructing vision unless and until we get to probable cause. And that's where I feel that the Court of Appeals erred here because their standard raised reasonable suspicion to probable cause, and that's not the standard. Counsel, if I may, I'm curious. I'm looking at the Court of Appeals' opinion, and and you were counsel at the Court of Appeals, it looks like. Yes. And... uh, Judge Ross, the author of the opinion, says that by analogy, we observe that the obstructed vision statute is somewhat parallel to the impaired driving statute, which makes it a crime for anyone to drive when they're under the influence of alcohol. And he says, as counsel acknowledges uh, at oral argument, a police officer may not constitutionally stop a driver merely because the officer knows the driver has been drinking. Um, an officer can no more constantly stop a person for a cracked windshield without having reason to suspect. So help me with that analogy, because it does seem apt, and it sounds like you had that discussion with the Court of Appeals. So, again, here you may know someone's been drinking, i.e., you may see there's a crack. Likewise, you may see there's a crack in the windshield. You don't have a right to stop someone just because you know they've been drinking. You have to see some behavior that suggests that they are impaired because of that drinking. Why isn't that an, an apt analogy? I would submit that that is not an appropriate analogy because in this case, well, well, in the situation of a driver that may have had half a drink or a drink and goes down the road, the officer has no information that that person is under the influence. All that officer can see is that there's a person, they're driving on the road, uh, and cannot make any determination whatsoever whether that person's under the influence. In this particular case... There was a sufficient crack, and I'm asking for a fact-specific decision in this case, based on the facts of this case, where the officer was able to see that crack when the officer passed a vehicle at a combined speed of 60 miles an hour. That was a significant crack so that the officer could see it. That gave the officer reasonable suspicion to stop and investigate if, in fact, it did uh, 
obstruct or impair the vision of the driver. And it may depend on perhaps the height of the driver, the size but of the windshield. how is that any different than if you see someone has, has a few beers and... But there's no ind- ind- indicia of uh, being under the influence at all for that driver, whereas here the officer can actually see and articulate the crack. There is a crack. It is significant enough so that I could visualize it at an effective 60 miles an hour, and I have the right to investigate because his inference that it may have limited proper vision is appropriate. I would submit that perhaps a more appropriate analogy is the one that I mentioned in my brief, and that's, that's the case, uh, Glover, I believe it is, of the officer who saw a vehicle with dark window tint, and the officer estimated based on hundreds of vehicles where he measured the window tint, that that was too dark. The district court said, no, that's not sufficient. And the Court of Appeals said, uh, that is sufficient. There's no way the officer can know, but the officer was entitled to make a reasonable inference based on his experience that that tint may have been too dark. He stopped the vehicle, measured it, and in fact, it was too dark. He had to, he had reasonable suspicion. Counsel, could I stop you there? Because that's the difference in, in Glover. Um, the officer used his experience and he suspected that the extent of the tint was too much. I mean, it wasn't just that the car had tint on it. I mean, uh, the analogy in Glover to this this case would be if the officer saw a car with tint and just stopped it without having that extra uh, suspicion based on experience that it was too much. Well, what I might suggest is that I believe this case gives the court an opportunity to determine um, and clarify precisely what reasonable suspicion is for the purpose of traffic stops. The state's position is, uh, as Justice Lillehog had articulated, is that the state need not show that the officer had reasonable suspicion for every single element of the crime. If there is enough and if it is reasonable under the Fourth Amendment, that is sufficient to make a stop. Can we talk about the seatbelt situation for a moment here? Um, and I'm specifically wondering whether appellant is correct. I, I think appellant's argument basically is that this brief reference to the seatbelt appearing not to have been on uh, is just not sufficient. Is that right or wrong? I, disagree, I respectfully disagree with that, Justice. Um, the reason being is that there were there were two things. One, the officer testified at the uh, contested omnibus hearing um, that it appeared when the vehicle went by him in the opposite direction that the seatbelt was not on. And he also testified that when he stopped Mr. Peeler, he told him the two reasons I stopped you were for the cracked windshield and for the seatbelt not being on, even though by that time uh, Mr. Peeler had a seatbelt on. And that was... Um, that was credited, I believe, the, the judge at least as far as the, the windshield crack uh, put in a footnote that the judge credited the testimony of the officer. And I would submit that between those two facts, that is sufficient to establish reasonable suspicion. Just because he used the term appeared uh, from the state's perspective does not uh, water down or weaken uh, his belief. That evinces his belief that Mr. Peeler was not wearing his seatbelt when he went by, even though they had a little um, tift, perhaps, uh, at the scene of the stop about whether he was actually wearing it. So I would submit that that is sufficient. And I would note that 
Um, that was placed on the record during the contested omnibus hearing. And when the prosecutor issued her memo to the district court, she did, in fact, argue both grounds, both the cracked windshield and the seatbelt violation. And so I would submit that those were properly before the uh, Court Count of Appeals, and they are properly before this court. Counsel, if I may, I, if I could back up again to the, the cracked windshield. I, I'm wondering about the appropriateness of... Uh, parsing the statute into these elements. When I look at the statute, I guess I don't see it as having separate elements. And I, I guess I'm wondering two things. What are the elements when the statute simply says uh, a person shall not drive or operate any motor vehicle with a cracked uh, windshield cracked or dis, uh, discolored to an extent to limit or obstruct proper vision? I mean, I don't see elements, plural. It's, that's the crime. And so I guess I'm wondering about your response to that. But secondly, can you cite, us, cite me to any case where we've talked about reasonable articulable suspicion in terms of whether it meets for crimes that do have separate elements, and there are many of those. This parsing is, is what I'm a little confused about, and I don't know that we've ever done that. I, I'm not aware, Justice, of a particular case that would parse out uh, saying you need certain elements of the crime to establish reasonable articulable suspicion. And that is the point of my argument today, is that that's not necessary. And one does not have to have facts to support every element of a crime. That is an issue I when guess you get that's what I'm getting at. What, what are the elements of this crime? It's a sentence. If, if this were to, be, to go to a court trial, um, say it's a petty misdemeanor, uh, having a cracked windshield, um, the state would have to prove first that a person was driving a motor vehicle on a public street or highway, presumably, uh, where the traffic code applies. Uh, secondly, that there was a crack in the windshield. And the third, it would, in the state's view, be a separate element that that crack limited or obstructed, in this particular circumstance, the vision of that particular driver under those well, I guess facts. that's why I was asking, can you even cite me a case where we've parsed a sentence like that? I mean, this is just one phrase, it seems to me. Or maybe... Well, I, I have seen a number of times when preparing for trial in various situations, uh, I'm getting ready to uh, marshal my facts for each particular element, and I go to um, put together my elements, and I don't see that in the criminal jury instruction guide put out they're, by West. They're there. They may not be articulated as such, but it, you know you've got to show each piece of that sentence. In, right, in effect. right. But then I have to basically do my best to determine what the elements are so that the, the particular conviction or adjudication will stand up on appeal, because not every crime is listed in the um, criminal jury instruction guides, and not every crime is listed with enough specificity because statutes get amended every single year, and there's a little bit of a lag time there. And so if I were to look at this particular statute, and I don't know if there's a jury instruction guide on it, I would, in, I would suggest that that has to be a separate element. One would have to specify for the purposes of proof beyond a reasonable doubt that, would that be it impaired. If we look and find there's no jig, does that tell me? Does that tell me anything? I hadn't thought about that. If there's no jig for this, I, I to be honest, I have not looked justice. Um, so, can I just ask you practically? So, if we adopt, and maybe you haven't thought about it in these terms, but if we adopt the rule of law that um, the defense is asking for here, how would that apply? 
to the rest of the statute. I mean, paragraph two, for example, any objects suspended between the driver and the windshield other than, and then there's a whole list. Um, any, and then paragraph three, any signed poster or other non-transparent material, et cetera, et cetera. Have you thought about practically the officers on the ground, if we adopt the rule of law that the defense is advocating here, how would it work? It, it wouldn't. Frankly, from my perspective, it would not work. And I would adopt the rationale of Olivares that um, essentially requiring that level of specificity that the Court of Appeals did here um, would gut this law because an officer in the course of patrolling and duties um, simply is not going to be able to articulate the details of a crack, particularly on either a two-lane roadway or four-lane roadway traveling um, at high speeds or combined speeds. It would simply gut the law. As one can see from the adjoining statute. Are we asking for very much? I mean, if the officer said, I saw a large crack, you know, it seemed like it was on the driver's side, wouldn't that be enough? I mean, it seems to me that this is not a very high standard uh, that would would satisfy what the defense is asking for. But even even saying a large crack, Justice, um, resulted in litigation in the Olivares case. The officer there was right behind the defendant's vehicle. His headlights reflected off that crack um, from behind, and um, he described it basically as a large crack. That's still litigated, and that would not necessarily solve the problem. And well, I the think standard the issue can't be whether something's going to be litigated or not. Well, correct, absolutely, Justice. But uh, my point simply being is that this case is an opportunity for this court to uh, just, elucidate. I, oh, go ahead, us, finish. Please. Just elucidate the lower courts and practitioners as to the standards and what's required for reasonable, articulable suspicion. And I would submit to the court that the Court of Appeals set it too high. So, just to clarify. Right on that point. So your rule that you would articulate is that an officer doesn't need to articulate reasonable suspicion of every element of a crime. Correct. Okay. Um, but no, we don't really have any case law support for that, that particular uh, statement. And you know, I, I did not find yeah. case law on that, and I, I looked. Yeah. Uh, but well, I, Terry I, itself, I mean. <laughs> well, he had a suspicion of that, that, based on his experience, that casing often leads to armed burglary. And armed burglary is a, is, is a crime. I mean, I, but uh, so I want to come back to one on, on disposition issues. So if we find that the Court of Appeals, uh, if we agree with the Court of Appeals on the windshield, and we find that the Court of Appeals shouldn't have reached the seatbelt uh, issue, does, what's the, what should we do? Should we send it back to the Court of Appeals? Or excuse me, send it back to the tr- district court uh, for the district court to actually decide the seatbelt issue? Well, the, the district court did state in its findings of facts, such as they were, it was sort of in a narrative form, um, that the officer, um, it appeared to the officer that the seat belt was not being worn. And I think that uh, fact is there in the record, and it's sufficiently there um, so that we can deal with it. But I would suggest that under Grunig, because this was raised in the district court at the omnibus hearing and in the memos, that this is properly before the, was before the Court of Appeals and is properly before oh, the district. And I think there's a very legitimate argument that that could be the case. I'm saying if we decide different than that, I'm just trying to think of what practically the disposition should be. So I, if we, 
it, my suggestion is for the court simply to make a, a very specific factual ruling on that because I believe the facts are there in the record. I think what Justice Thiessen is saying is if, if we don't agree with that, is, does it, is it a proper to remand it to the district court to uh, either amend its findings or to determine that they were insufficient or what have you? What is the remedy if we don't agree with you? And this, this court always has that opportunity and uh, has done that before. If, if this court is of the view that those findings were not sufficient, uh, you can remand it to back to the district court. And I believe I saw a relatively recent case where the Court of Appeals remanded something to the district court and left it to the district court to determine if it was going to open the record or simply clarify. And I see my time has expired. Counsel, hold on. We have a couple extra questions. Just Lohog and then Justice Thiessen. Now, whether or not it is an element, the phrase that starts with to the extent seems to envision kind of a sliding scale that um, at some point the obstruction becomes sufficient to obstruct vision. At some point it's not. Does the fact that this phrase, whether or not it's an element, you know, has this kind of sliding scale in it, does that help or hurt your argument on reasonable articulable suspicion? I'm going to ask the same question of opposing counsel. Well, I would submit that, well, actually, it, it can cut both ways because of the fact that um, the officer has to make the stop to fully investigate that issue. I would submit the way this is written, the officer can't make that determination on the fly. Right next to this particular statute is um, another statute that says it's unlawful to drive a vehicle with a windshield fogged or steamed. Subdivision 3. Yes, uh, to um, impair, obstruct proper vision. And again, that's the type of situation where, yes, there's a sliding scale. There may be situations where an officer can see that person didn't scrape the windshield at all, and it's all frosted over. They can't see through it. And another one where most of the frost is gone, but there's six, eight inches all the way around the windshield, and they can see through the center. The officer has to make the stop in order to uh, investigate that to reach the level of probable cause, but the stop would be based on reasonable suspicion that that violated the law. Justice Thiessen. I just, thank you. One more question. So on this, uh, the question they appeared to see a violation, so, and I can totally see how, how someone could conclude from that language that that means that the officer thought that he saw no seatbelt on. But could it also be interpreted to say, I don't know for sure whether he had a seatbelt on? I mean, you could, it could be one of those two things, right? Well, I, I would suggest that when he said it appeared, that means it's apparent to him. Okay. And if it's apparent to him, he saw it, he believed it. And that's how I would interpret that. Okay. Thank Th you. Thank you, counsel. Um, Mr. Saratori, you have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Counsel, I recognize that you wouldn't um, agree with this, but just procedurally, if we conclude that the seatbelt issue is properly before us and that that is sufficient, is it even necessary for this court to address um, the somewhat complicated issues about what to do about the windshield? Well, I mean, with regards to the seatbelt, I mean, I look at the, the stop as there's two prongs to the stop here. 
There's the seatbelt and there's the cracked windshield. We're asking the court to affirm the Court of Appeals on the seatbelt, on the, on the cracked windshield issue, but this court, if the court's going to consider the seatbelt issue, would just say that there's not sufficient, uh, sufficient facts provided by the officer to believe that this driver was not wearing a seatbelt. He didn't articulate sufficient facts. I mean, Britain is very clear, and, and I guess this is where uh, my colleague and I disagree. He, he kept saying, may commit a crime. Well, that's not the standard. The standard is to justify a warrantless investigative seizure, a police officer must be able to articulate some, I'm not asking for all, but some objective basis that the individual seized has been, is presently, or is about to engage in criminal activity. A statement such as appears to be wearing a seatbelt does not fit into that standard. Moreover, as it relates to the windshield, there is no facts articulated here other than the windshield was cracked. And if you look at the statute, it doesn't have an and in there. The windshield cracked to the extent that it, imp it impairs or obstructs somebody's vision. That's the crime. And if there's no specific facts given as to this crack, there's, no, there's nothing leading one to believe that there's reasonable articulable suspicion that criminal activity is afoot. That's the issue we have here. So back on the um, seatbelt, let's change the facts slightly. Let's say that when the officer came up to the car and the driver said, um, why'd you pull me over? The officer said, I thought you weren't wearing your seatbelt. I, I now know that I am mistaken. You are wearing your seatbelt. So it's, it's a mistake of fact. And then he notices that the driver has a strong odor of alcohol, the runny eyes and all that. Would the stop have to be suppressed if it was just about the seatbelt? With the facts we have here, yes. No, with the facts in my hypothetical. But your, your facts of your hypothetical is, is it again, does he say it appears that his seatbelt is not on? Does he give any other facts other than... He says, I thought you weren't wearing your seatbelt. I would argue that it has to be suppressed because it's not reasonable. Wouldn't it just be a mistake of fact? It's, but it's got to be a reasonable mistake of fact. If you look at the cases, just, and I was going to answer your question on high end as well, yeah. that's a reasonable mistake of law. Reasonable mistake of facts and reasonable mistakes of law have to be reasonable. There has to be something there for the officer to have made a mistake about, meaning some observation. If you look at the mistake of reasonable mistake of fact cases, there was identity issues where the person they were looking for was close to the person they, they, they pulled over or it has to do with apparent authority and who had authority to search or give consent to search. That's reasonable. There's nothing here of fact that can be reasonable. I'm having trouble as to what more you want the officer to say about the seatbelt. I mean, do they have to say, I, I drove past you and you were not wearing your seatbelt? I mean, is that enough? Or does it have to be, I drove past you and... Um, you were wearing a red shirt, and it appeared to me that I didn't see any black or tan. Um, I mean, what more do you want them to say other than it appeared to me you weren't wearing your seatbelt? Well, if, if we're looking at a Fourth Amendment intrusion, it's very important. I mean, we're looking at stopping somebody, seizing somebody. So there has to be more than just it appears to be. Yes, I would argue that, yes, you have to say something like, I could see into the passenger compartment or into the, comp the, the, the where the driver was sitting, and I could see that the seatbelt was hanging on the column and it wasn't across his chest. 
that he was wearing a red shirt and the seatbelt was gray. Things like that. I mean, it doesn't have to get that specific, but enough to say more than it appeared. He was not even equivocal on that. It appeared he wasn't wearing the seatbelt. When he approached the driver... Isn't that also kind of what we want police officers to do? I mean, he wasn't accusatory. He just said, it appeared to me you weren't wearing your seatbelt. And the driver insisted that he was, and he didn't get into an argument with him about it. I mean, it seemed to me that that was reasonable police work. I mean, he listened to him when he said, it appeared to me you weren't wearing your seatbelt. Well, I just am having trouble what more we want him to do other than arguing with the, with the defendant. I don't know. Well, he doesn't have to argue. His decision to pull over is not for the defendant. I mean, it is in a way for courts to determine if, if somebody's, um, if, if an officer's actions were lawful. It's not for him to get into the argument with, uh, with, with the defendant about, okay? The simple fact is, is he's got to articulate for reviewing for, for the trial court, for attorneys, for everybody, if there was sufficient facts to believe that this person wasn't wearing a seatbelt, that he was committing a criminal activity. To say it appears? But the record does say that he, where he was, um, what the vehicle was, where, which direction he was going, um, the speed limit that they were... Uh, traveling at and that he then appeared that he was not wearing his seatbelt. I mean, those, it's not like he just out of the blue. I mean, it does, it does lead up to the point where, I mean, clearly he had the right vehicle. Right. Well, right. He, it was the only vehicle the color, on the road. The yes. make, the model, he goes through all of that and then it appears he wasn't wearing his seatbelt. Does that not add to his ability to articulate reasonable suspicion or, or no? No, because I mean, what he was describing there was stuff that he generally needs to describe with regards to identifying the vehicle that he stopped. I mean, it's, it's, it's right there. Um, it's, he's not committing any criminal activity. You have to articulate facts particularized to the criminal activity that is being uh, to the violation that the, the stop is based upon. To argue, the, to, to answer high and, and back Judge Lehog is that, or Justice Lehog is that mistake of fact, just like mistake of law, has to be reasonable. And then if you look at the high end decision, that was a change in the law uh, where it had to do with what, what constituted a, the proper amount of brake lights. The law changed. The officer reasonably relied on a change in the law or what he thought the law was. That's reasonable. That's not re- a reasonable mistake of fact has to have something to be mistaken about, some more and facts. W- than and what's reasonable is judged on an objective standard, not a subjective standard. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Okay. If you look at... Uh, my, my colleague mentioned the credibility that he gave the officer in a footnote that... He quoted or mentioned in his argument that had to do only with the windshield. Although the photographs do not show the crack in the windshield, Detective Geis testified credibly that the defendant's windshield was cracked. That had nothing to do with the seatbelt issue. I believe it was kind of mixed and matched. What, if anything, can we infer from your client's admission that he knew the windshield was cracked and that he had to get it fixed? Uh, Nothing. Because the windshield was cracked. They didn't say anything about the obstruction. Well, but if it wasn't obstructing his view, why would he say he has to get it fixed? Because there's more dangers to having a cracked windshield uh, for most people. I mean, It's your position that we can't infer anything from your client's statement that he, in terms of of the reasonable articulable suspicion of a violation of the law. No, uh, not with regards to this in this situation, because there's no admission that the windshield was, was, was... 
obstructing his view. He didn't say, I got to I got to get this windshield cracked because I can't see out of it. He just said, it's, I got to get it fixed. Right, but I mean, you don't contend that, this, that the officer had to say that the windshield crack obstructed the driver's view. I mean, your argument is he, he, if he had said it was a large crack or it was a, it was a crack in the middle of the, drive, uh, the windshield on the driver's side, something like that, that would allow you to infer that it must be that obstructing the view, that would be sufficient, right? So why isn't it sufficient that your client admitted he had to get it fixed? Well, because there's many reasons why people believe that they need to get a windshield quick, such as safety and our other reasons, to infer that it's, it's blocking the view from that, I think would be a stretch. I mean, when you're talking about size and location, that's a different story. When I had a crack in my windshield, uh, the people told me it, it, may, it wasn't anywhere near my side. It, the people told me, you should get that fixed because it will probably grow. Yes, or spider or shattered. And if you look at some of the cases on crack windshield, most of them have shattered or spidered and things like that. If the justices have no more questions, again, I ask that this, uh, this court affirm the decision on the windshield of the Court of Appeals and reverse on the seatbelt. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thanks to both counsel for the help you provided to the court in this case. This matter is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. And I want to thank you all again for participating with us in our historic fire drill. Thank you, counsel. We're in recess. <laughs>